0: In this episode, we will ask and answer several questions which will help identify what is the correct biblical definition of being a Christian. We will endeavor to specify and resolve any stereotypical misconceptions about the nature and character of what it means biblically to be a Christian. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to open our minds and hearts, give us patience in this episode give us discernment to know and understand what it means to have a relationship with and follow your Son, our Lord and Savior, Yeshua, Jesus, who is the Christ, our Messiah, our God and King. In Jesus' name, Amen. Most, if not everyone, living anywhere where there is even a moderate exposure to the world has heard the word Christian. Even where misunderstanding and erroneous information clouds the subject, most have some basic understanding of what they believe a Christian is. Unfortunately at present, the term itself has effectively transformed itself from being a mere English word with a singular meaning to being a term which can mean anything and everything depending on by and to what who, where, when, how, and why the word is being used. On any given day, one can mix with the public in any average town in America and without another thought be confronted with endless decals, emblems, jewelry, stickers, or other information which in one way or another ostensibly proclaims oneself or another to be Christian. We have entire cottage industries devoted to producing and selling crosses on necklaces, bracelets with WWJD, Ixthus fish logos, children praying at the cross, not of this world stickers, John 316 bumper stickers, just to name a few. While none of these are in any way bad, the question remains, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Surely it doesn't begin and end with the application of a sticker on one's car. Hopefully it's more than wearing a piece of jewelry. But this begs the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Rather than having a uniform understanding, the word Christian has come to mean everything and nothing all at the same time. Inevitably, the world we live in has come to the point where we must use at least one if not several sentences related to defining, qualifying, and or interpreting what is meant by the word Christian. To complicate matters, the majority of people seem to come wired from birth with the idea of having and expressing an opinion on everything is like breathing. While on some levels there may be nothing wrong with having and expressing an opinion, often very little consideration is given to whether there exists enough knowledge and experience to give an opinion with substance. The situation is no different regarding the subject of Christianity. Typically, whenever the subject of Christianity comes up for discussion, someone will at some point raise one or more of the following questions, or a variation thereof, sometimes as an accusation, sometimes as an honest question. Here are the questions. 1. If Christianity is authentic, then why are there so many denominations and or variations? 2. If Christianity is true, then why have there been so many Christians who have done such terrible things? 3. If Christianity is true, why are there Christians who still continue to commit sin? And 4. What is a true Christian? Since these are questions which continue to resurface in one form or another, it behooves us to understand the questions and be able to demonstrate a level of critical thinking and authoritative answers. In an effort to meet this goal, let's take the questions and answers one at a time. Question 1. If Christianity is authentic, then why are there so many denominations or variations? This question, in its various forms, is one of the continuing complaints from the secular humanist, skeptic, and atheist. Inevitably, these groups look at the landscape of the world and see myriad offshoots, denominations, segments, and subcategory groups of people, large and small, who claim the title Christian. The secular humanist, skeptic, and atheist then argue that because there are people who call themselves Christians, who hold beliefs, tenets, customs, and or rituals which vary from insignificant to profound, that this fact demonstrates that all of Christianity is somehow flawed or untrustworthy. This group would further suggest that given the fact there is so much confusion, so much debate, so much ambiguity, so many shades of gray to the various possible definitions of Christianity, that this would itself prove that there is in fact no actual uniform definition which can be called Christian. Essentially, skeptics and atheists suggest that since there are so many denominations with so much dissent about what is Christian, the logical conclusion is that God, Jesus, the Bible, Christ, et al. are all inventions with no substance, and thus defining the word Christian is like chasing the wind. Inevitably, the suggestion or demand is that we must throw Christianity and all forms of religion away, given the confusion. However, the real question is, does the fact that there are supposed hundreds, thousands, or more people who call themselves Christians while espousing dissimilar habits and believes prove that there is not something which in fact exists which is authentically Christian. Take, for example, the $100 bill. The minute I mention it, 99% of Americans know exactly what I'm talking about. Now I ask that same 99% to describe the $100 bill in as much detail as possible. Some will do so from memory with results which vary from few details to an entire list of security features which authenticate it. Others might actually pull out a $100 bill from their wallet and describe what they see. Now imagine if I took one authentic $100 bill and placed it on a table with 50 other $100 bills which are counterfeit. Then I shuffle and mix the bills and ask you to pick out the authentic bill from among the counterfeit bills would you be able to find the authentic bill? What if we come on the scene late, after the bills are mixed and shuffled, and I make the challenge? In this scenario, there are only so many options, but what is prudent? Should I pick them all up and just go use them to buy something? Unfortunately, if any of them are counterfeit, I stand a good chance of getting arrested for counterfeiting. Perhaps I should just burn them all to be safe. Unfortunately, that would be a big waste if any of them are real. After all, I just burned 100 or more dollars. What's the best thing to do? Now notice, whether we are talking about just one counterfeit $100 bill, or thousands in this hypothetical scenario, we are never distracted into believing there is no such thing as a $100 bill anywhere in existence. Why? because the quantity of counterfeit bills in existence has no bearing on the reality of the existence of an authentic $100 bill, which is the subject in question. Regrettably, Christianity, as with so many other things, has suffered the ravages of time and confusion. Inevitably, whenever something is a success... Whenever something has value, it becomes a target for those who will, for whatever motives, seek to use or abuse what is genuine, and in doing so will produce some hybrid counterfeit product. The success of that which is counterfeit relies on the fact that the counterfeit product looks as much like that which is genuine so as to fool as many as possible. With Christianity, like the $100 bill, there has been is and will be incentive for many to counterfeit it and attempt to pass it off as authentic for various motives. Like the $100 bill, the central factor to successfully counterfeiting Christianity has always depended on incorporating and correctly copying as many of the identifying features of the authentic product as is possible. The success of passing anything which is counterfeit also depends on the familiarity and attention to detail of the person receiving the product. So it is with Christianity. First of all, we must remember that Christianity has power, value, and is genuine. If this was not the case, there would be no motivation to copy, counterfeit, or rip it off. So the fact that there are a million or more copycats to Christianity, rather than being an indication that there is no authentic Christianity, instead tends to support the idea that Christianity does exist in its authentic form since imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Second, Those who do counterfeit it always attempt to do so using as many of the features which make it powerful and dynamic as possible. Thirdly, those who pass or attempt to pass the counterfeit product do so depending on the inattention, laziness, and sadly the ignorance of those receiving it. A second more important aspect to remember is that Christianity, unlike the $100 bill, is not an inanimate object which is assigned with intrinsic value by others. Christianity is a personal living relationship initiated, maintained, and completed by God's grace through faith in Jesus between each person and God. The power, value, and importance of the various merits of this relationship carries infinite and eternal value measured according to the sacrifice, love, justice, and mercy of God. When we examine the question asked, If Christianity is authentic, then why are there so many denominations and or variations? We must realize that the way the question is framed creates a logical fallacy. The question posed by skeptics and atheists attempts to discourage people into believing that the problem is that Christianity, and any other religion likewise, is a myth. The reason we know this is because if Christianity were true, then we would expect to find only one denomination called Christianity which is perfectly uniform in every respect. They conclude that the fact that there are so many denominations demonstrates that there is none which are authentic. The only problem for the atheist and skeptic is that they are unable to apply their own formulaic rule to themselves. For example, let's ask the question, has the scientific community always agreed 100% on 100% of what they believe? Is there only one uniform understanding around the world of how, what, why, when, and where regarding all of science? Or are there more than one different possible theories to explain things within science? Since there is more than one absolute uniform theory to explain everything, can I ask the question, if science is authentic, then why are there so many theories and variations? Should I suggest we just throw out all of science given the fact that there are so many differences among the scientific community, and that demonstrates that there is no authentic scientific community? In the end, if the skeptic and atheist are going to be honest, they must also disqualify themselves using the same formulaic question. However, in the end, we are not trying to disqualify science or Christianity. Our goal is to honestly answer the question and explain why are there so many denominations and or people who call themselves Christian and yet we find so many differences minute to massive in nature. So what is or are the explanations? 1. Definition The first issue which explains why there are so many variations to the definition of being Christian is how we define the word Christianity. If we start with an incorrect, confused, or no definition at all, then there is no surprise when we end with incorrect, confused, varied, or no understandings. I would submit that as long as we attempt to define what is or is not Christianity outside of Scripture, there will consequently be many different and or likely incorrect definitions of the word Christianity. Likewise, when we carefully examine all of Scripture within its context, using an understanding of the original languages and culture in question for which Scripture was written, the word Christian and its meaning become much narrower and specific. 2. License The second issue which explains why there are so many variations to the definition of being Christian is the reality that there is no license, for lack of a better term, for the use of the word Christian. While from a scriptural standpoint there may be a copyright in place for the term Christian, the word itself has no litmus test with which it can be used outside the Bible to validate whether someone or something is or is not Christian. Any person or persons can at any time adopt the label, use it, and discard it again like a hot potato at will. It is critical to always remember that simply because a person or persons use the label even with the greatest of zeal, fervor, emotion, and sincerity, that the mere use of the label verbally or in writing does not guarantee that that person or persons applying the term are in fact Christians according to whatever definitions the Bible actually define the term. Thus, when we attempt to evaluate who or what is or is not Christian, we are not limiting ourselves merely to the application of a title, we should likewise also not attempt to evaluate who or what is or is not Christian by looking at the merits through the spectrum of man's perspective or opinion. Rather, if we want to know who or what is or is not Christian, we must do so through the prism and context of Scripture. As a result, it should come as no surprise that if we do not ask what qualifications a person has, which gives them the license to define Christianity, and we thus allow for different and divergent starting points, that we should also expect numerous different and divergent outcomes. Three, an adversary. Anytime you have an avowed adversary to some goal plan, idea, or design, you can expect some level of opposition which will take one or more forms. It is only when there is no opposition that things are able to proceed more quickly or smoothly. In the case of God's design and plan to create, establish, and maintain a relationship with man, we are introduced in Genesis chapter 3, to the reality that Satan initiated his first attack on that relationship. From Genesis chapter 3 to the conclusion of Revelation, we progressively learn about Satan's continued attack from various quarters on our relationship with God. As you may recall, Satan began his campaign to destroy our relationship by twisting what God had already said to Adam and Eve. As we study scripture and Satan's interaction with man throughout history, we see that it comes as no surprise to see Satan continuing to twist, undermine, and counterfeit God's word and his promises. In fact, if truth be told, once Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind at all, made the choice to listen to Satan, Scripture actually predicts the reality that opposed to there being unification and harmony between God and man, or even man and man, instead the prediction from Scripture was and is greater sin, separation, and descent until God's intervention at the cross and His ultimate return as King of Kings. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, Jesus Himself says, quote, "For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect." Unquote. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three and four say, quote, "But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost." in whom the God of this world, Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them, unquote. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 says, quote, But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ, unquote. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. As a result, when we place Satan's involvement into the context of human events and apply this reality to the phenomenon of there being many differing and often opposing elements calling themselves Christian, Instead of this being an indictment of the authenticity of Christianity, we see instead that the phenomena is actually a verification of its existence, as well as being evidence consistent with the theory just posed. 4. Sin. While Satan got the ball rolling and Adam and Eve made their initial choice, which caused separation for all mankind, we cannot discount the ongoing effects of the separation which is now a condition of our hearts, minds, and spirits. Satan does not want submission to God, his word, or his will. Since Satan is the father of lies and disharmony with God, we would expect that since we all live in a fallen world, still affected by Satan's power, that Satan would find it advantageous to place division and disagreement within the body of Christ. Further, since Satan's expertise is to counterfeit the things of God, we would expect to find many people and or groups who call themselves Christian as a result of falling for that which Satan has counterfeited. In this respect, the effects of sin and separation are like Newton's first law of motion, which says, quote, every object in a state of uniform motion tends to remain in that state of motion." unless an external force is applied to it, Placed into theological terms, sin, which is the object, has been and remains in constant motion in the lives of all mankind. The only change possible for sin, i.e. the object, apart from an external force being applied to it, other than man, is for that object, sin, to accelerate and grow. In other words, in order to effectively deal with sin and separation, we each need a new nature born of a relationship with Jesus, which gives each believer his transforming power through faith, which provides sanctification, which is that external force working from within, whereby we walk in victory day to day. Paul makes this very argument in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 7, verses 18-24, through 24, which says, quote, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members." O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Unquote. Now admittedly, the condition and dilemma that Paul laments here is that of the believer who experiences what Paul describes as a bitter struggle between the inner man made alive by God's spirit and the carnal man who dwells in his flesh. If we accept this revelation, we may see, by comparison, a far worse condition destined to become terminal for those who remain in sin, rebellion, and separation. There is little question that any who subsist in such a dire situation would exhibit the logical symptoms of such a condition, including the inability to correctly define or recognize what is or is not legitimately Christian, since such personal knowledge does not yet exist. 5. Discernment. Discernment is a condition which is present exclusively as a result of God's indwelling Holy Spirit, which is a gift imparted to all sincere believers who have a relationship by grace through faith in Jesus. Having said this most of the time, the non-believer, the skeptic, and the atheist, as opposed to recognizing the value of such a commodity as discernment, see the sincere Christian as being deluded or gullible. Others who have not been born from above may know about discernment and may be able to explain what it means. However, none, save those who have a relationship with Jesus, can actually use or experience the gift of discernment the two mindsets are in reality irreconcilable. Those who are born from above may remember and be able to relate to their own former natural mind, and by extension that of others. Unfortunately, the natural mind cannot fathom the mind of God, the things of the Spirit, the issue of discernment, its use, or those who use it without actually having discernment imparted through God's indwelling Spirit. Without discernment, man is left to reason, think, judge, and act according to the natural mind, doing what they see right in their own eyes, as guided entirely by the dictates of sin and separation. The only escape from this predicament is via the gift of a new nature and a new mind to overpower such dictates. As such, the gift of discernment is one of many benchmarks which exist as a tangible fruit in the life of a Christian believer. God's spirit of discernment is a two-pronged gift. Firstly, discernment is used in conjunction with God's Word, Discernment is a tool which helps the believer to compare and contrast all things to see how and in fact whether or not the things in our lives measure up to what God's Word teaches us. Within this process, discernment is God's gift which helps the believer to be instructed and reminded of God's will for our lives. Secondly, discernment guides the believer in those instances where God's Word is silent. As a result, when we examine the issue of numerous persons or groups who label themselves Christian, the explanation in part is to understand that the lack of an authentic relationship with Christ or of having the resulting gift of discernment will inevitably lead to confusion and error. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says it this way, Quote, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned." These five factors work together or independently with every man individually or corporately to cause division, separation, inconsistency both to those who are within the authentic body of Christ as well as those who are marginally Christian. These factors also cause those who know very little or nothing about Christ to label themselves as Christian for one of any number of ulterior motives. This concludes part one of this episode, Please join us again for part two. Thank you for listening.
1: Though the world falls around me, I rest and know that He has found me. Christ, the rock, is my foundation. I will trust in Him, I will trust in Him. We'll trust him